Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on yet another sunny day here in the capital. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and today, as always, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First, we're joined once again by Sam Strickland, principal of the Dunstan School, a Northampton-based school teaching those between the ages of four and 19. Sam began his teaching career as a history teacher, quickly gaining and surpassing the rungs of administration. Sam is also the author of Education Exposed and his forthcoming book, Education Exposed 2, which is set for release later this autumn, but more on that later. Sam, hello. Good morning, and thank you so much for having me. Good morning. Thank you so much for coming back on the program. It's always a pleasure to have you on the show. Now, um, of course, we are still in the midst of a very strange period of time. How are you faring at the moment? Yeah, it's been, uh, as you should well imagine, it's been quite challenging. Uh, we've had to, uh, since I was last on the show, we've had to initiate a, a reopening plan for the school for the new academic year uh, to ensure that we could bring an entire school community back. And uh, the school that, that I'm in charge of runs from early years through to post-16. So, again, against the, the nature and demands of the, the curriculum and how that varies from one age group and one year group to the next, that's obviously posed um, differing challenges within its own right. Um, I'm pleased to say that 11 days in uh, to the new academic year, uh, the attendance is far higher than I had initially expected it to be amongst the pupils. Uh, and the, the pupils that, that attend my school have been um, and actually credit themselves to the, to the community and indeed to the school itself for the way in which they've gone about engaging with the, the systems and protocols and procedures that we have in place. Um, obviously, kind of moving forward, the challenge is that, that kind of elephant in the room, which is COVID and, and, and the challenges that that brings. But we'll bridge that for you know, one day to the next, one week to the next, uh, as we move forward in real time. Now, of course, one of the big questions that people will be asking, um, and I know it's awfully early in term time to tell, uh, what was the result of the distance learning? Do you feel that the pupils were able to onboard the information, they, the same level of information they normally would have in the classroom? Have they onboarded less or have they actually uh, been able to absorb more? Yeah, so I think back to kind of how, how this all came about uh, once we, we ended up locking down uh, and schools closing their, their doors to most of their pupils apart from key worker pupils and, and vulnerable pupils. Um, I think we had to feel our way through this initially as a profession because this is a, it's a new approach. And, and the, I think something that's perhaps not been given enough credit is the professional agility of the teaching profession to completely change its normal MO of delivery at high speed. Um, and then you've also got the other the other side of it, which is the, the agility of the pupils to respond and to, to cope with a very new uh, mode of delivery in terms of their learning. Um, from my own school's perspective, um, we probably had about 80% of what you would describe as positive engagement with um, the online learning that we provided our pupils with. And for the other 20%, um, we had to distribute hard copy uh, packs of uh, of work for people to engage with at home. Um, 
is it is it a substitute for uh, you know a positive substitute for teaching in, in a classroom? No, um, I, I would argue it's not. I've personally uh, engaged in both online live learning and pre-recorded learning uh, lessons to see um, kind of how they work. Because if I if I want my staff to be able to do you know, if, I, if I'm going to demand of my staff to do those kinds of things, I need to know what the pitfalls are. And whilst they're better than nothing, of course, um, I would question overall, that, 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 or challenge rather, that they're not as effective as being in a classroom with pupils. And, and we miss a lot of the nuances of what you'd normally get in a normal lesson setting where people, through the professional kind of cues that we're able to pick up on, perhaps might not understand uh, a topic or um, a piece of factual information or knowledge uh, or not understand how to engage with a piece of work. You, you can't quite pick up on that in the way in which you can in real time live in, in, a, in a lesson. Um, what, we, what we expected going into this academic year is that pupils would come back uh, to us with gaps in their knowledge. Um, and I think you know, the best one in the world, even if you had 100% engagement with live online learning lessons, I think you would still have that um, series of gaps in knowledge amongst the pupils. And we've tried to tier our curriculum. Um, thinking back to when we opened our doors wider in June and July to um, our year 10 and our year 12 pupils, we engaged those pupils when they came in in a series of consolidatory big lectures, so university-style lectures, whereby the, the teaching staff um, were distilling all of the, the key knowledge that people needed to know about whatever subject they were learning um, and compact it into a two-hour delivery um, to, to review what the people should have engaged with and learned and understood uh, and have embedded into their long-term schema in that lockdown phase. And then in the, during this first kind of two weeks of the new academic year, we've um, revisited that as an institution. Uh, and my, my view very much is that we need that kind of initial input of recursive learning and learning that should have already taken place before we start to present new material to our pupils and then engage our pupils in low-stakes retrieval um, quizzes and um, low-stakes retrieval um, tests as opposed to kind of high-stakes benchmarking assessments and be benchmarking tests to see what the pupils do and don't know. I'd far rather we've got the pupils actively engaged in learning and understanding the systems and routines that we have before we um, engage them in any kind of what you describe as formalized testing. Now, of course, we now know uh, that the COVID situation is not going to go, to way, go away anytime soon. It may get worse before it gets better, but mm. certainly uh, we will be living with the situation we're in for quite some time. Now, uh, to play devil's advocate here, uh, the current uh, model of education is barely 200 years old. Um, is there a third way? Not the current system, not the distance learning system, but a third way uh, to educate pupils during uh, the pandemic. Yeah, that's a, again a huge challenge for the profession to, to, I guess, identify initially what that third way would be. If I think about the second way, which is the the online approach, what you know, the profession has in really shown amazing agility uh, to engage with that. I think there are still teasing issues 
again, again, for your very question that the education system is 200 years old, live online learning is best we in the world six months old in terms of a national approach to it. Um, and there are still pitfalls. Obviously, with that particular um, methodology of, of, of delivery, and mm-hmm. not least connectivity at home to, to pupils, internet access, device access, so I think still best will in the world is something that still needs more thought um, put to it. And I appreciate that the government has um, attempted to furnish as many pupils as possible with, with devices, but there are still numbers of pupils that don't have devices. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do think, though, ultimately, there is no real substitute for that face-to-face classroom delivery. Mm. Uh, and I know that might sound very traditional and, and for some people almost dinosaur archaic-like, but I just look at what has happened over the last 200 years uh, and what has been successful. Uh, and through my own professional career, where, where the learning is that it's most successful is where you do have that highly trained expert in the classroom with the pupils. Um, and certainly, uh, why would 75, 80% of schools' budgets be on staffing, um, which is our biggest commodity in many regards and our biggest asset? I think we, we need to be careful how much we, we try and push that to one side. So there, there may be, you know, it's kind of a long-winded answer here, but it may well be a third way. I'm not quite sure, if I'm honest, at this current point, what that third way would be, because I don't think we've fully um, grasped the second way yet. Um, but I'd be all ears and very willing to be receptive uh, to, to what a third way might be. I'm not sure at this point I I have an answer to what that that would be, though. Mm. Do you feel that parents have uh, met the mark when it comes to uh, homeschooling during this period of time? Uh, Or do you feel that there should be a bit more effort on uh, the behalf of uh, the parents and guardians of the pupils? I think, if I'm objective, it's really difficult. Um, You've got such a bandwidth of um, different different parents, different parenting experiences. On one front, you've got parents who don't value education uh, and who don't engage with education when their their children are actually physically in the school building. So then putting uh, responsibility, and I'm not saying we should involve parents' responsibility for their children at all, but when we're saying that we're going to put the educational responsibility into the the palms or laps of of those parents and then wonder why their children aren't engaging in perhaps in the way that we, we would hope. I think we probably know the answer on that front. You've then got another tier of parents who um, will be balancing, no doubt, their own jobs, um, trying to engage in working from home themselves, uh, coupled with trying to keep a watchful eye on monitoring what their sons or daughters might be doing uh, in terms of the, the school learning that's taking place. Uh, and, and no doubt some households are of a varying degree of, of different age children, um, some of which may well be of an age, with, you know, thinking of primary, who may not be quite so self-sufficient and able to log on to a computer and get on it with themselves. And I think that creates a huge pressure for parents in that they're trying to manage their own work, their own job, their own livelihoods, which allows those families to keep a roof over their head, but also trying to maintain um, watchful eye on their, their, their children full stop um, and then I think you've also got those parents who would ordinarily thinking about you know, kind of levels of affluence etc may well be purchasing uh, the services of private tutors to work with their, their children ordinarily 
uh, and may well have engaged further with that during this lockdown window. And uh, I don't have any evidence to say whether that's happened or not, but uh, this is me kind of um, sort of pontificating, I guess. But I'm sure that that may well have happened as we start to slowly unlock uh, as a society as well. But I do think, again, in answer to your question, I think it's been a really tall ask for parents. And some parents would have done an absolutely sterling and incredible job. Um, some parents would have would absolutely have struggled and some would have actively sought not to engage w- with it because of their own opinions on education. Um, but I do think, again, best school in the world, even the, the most engaged parents, unless they are teachers themselves, will have lacked the necessary level of expertise and subject knowledge to be able to really teach their child in the way that the school can do. Um, so I think that, again, there will be a variability in answer to your question of the, the different experiences that different pupils would have received because of um, the fair means or foul for, for parental engagement. Well, moving away uh, from the cheerful topic of COVID-19, I'd like to talk a bit more about the Dunstan School uh, as an institution. Uh, let's uh, mm. take a, a few minutes and forget the woes of COVID behind us. Uh, your school's mantra is knowledge itself is power. I'd like you to talk to me about your school's ethos and values. Yeah, our, our ethos um, is one built upon extremely high and explicit expectations with really simple rules that are easy to understand, grounded in common sense, um, and a real can-do culture within the school. So... Uh, yeah, one of our mantras, as you've rightly identified, is this idea of knowledge itself as power. Uh, and, and we are firm believers of the school in a knowledge-based and knowledge-rich curriculum. Um, knowledge is the, is the bedrock, ultimately, I would argue, uh, for pupils to be successful at school and then moving forward into life to be successful in life. Um, and when we talk about skills, which is a, is a debate that resides within the, the teaching profession, that, that kind of weighing balancing effect between um, skills and knowledge my, my view very much is that you you can't begin to evaluate or interpret uh, or analyze or synthesize or create anything if you haven't got a knowledge base in the first place otherwise what is it that you're actually trying to uh, to analyze to evaluate without that knowledge base being there in place and it, it goes to um, really the, the easy Hirsch quote of knowledge begets knowledge that the more knowledge you possess, uh, then the more receptive and able to um, devour more knowledge uh, becomes for our pupils. So we have that as a guiding principle for our curriculum. Uh, and our curriculum is heavily built um, on retrieval practice so that teachers are constantly reviewing prior learning with the pupils so it's never forgotten before they then move on to present new material. Um, and there's a lot of responsibility within uh, our curriculum design as well for our pupils to take ownership of their learning um, in terms of the, uh, the, the that, that approach that we have overall. There's a misconception around a kind of knowledge-rich approach that sits in a series of mm. um, kind of facts or a pub quiz type approach. And yes, of course, you know, pupils need to know things like the capital cities of, of countries and the names of rivers. And there's a, there is a degree of having to know facts. 
but equally there is a responsibility on the part of teachers and indeed the pupils to be able to then um, use that information to hang it on to um, questions, uh, lines of inquiry, etc. That, that pupils would have to engage throughout their learning. Uh, another aspect within our manager and our resource is that very much the teacher is the expert. Um, within the context of profession, there was a, a lengthy period of time where teacher voice was uh, limited um, and actively um, kind of quashed in many regards, whereby teachers were, were criticised, if I'm honest, for talking for any more than, say, five or ten minutes in a lesson. Uh, and going back to one of my, my previous answers to one of your other previous questions, since 85% of the school's budget, depending on the school, uh, is invested in its staff. And we're, you know, for a school like mine, we're talking some of the region of about seven and a half to eight and a half million pounds there. And I'm asking that seven and a half or eight and a half million pounds to be silent. Um, I find that kind of bizarre, really, as, a, as an approach that I've got. People who are absolute experts in their subject, you know, they know their subjects inside out. Uh, and I would ask them to, uh, to, to tell or limit their, their, their voice, their, their level of knowledge in a lesson. I, I, doesn't marry with the approach that, that we have as a school. Um, and again, underpinning everything that we do is a huge can-do culture. We serve a, a real bandwidth um, in a societal sense, and we're in um, what is just deemed to be a deprived ward. Uh, but my view is that, that the people should have huge aspirations for themselves. And we talk um, extensively with the pupils about dream, believe, and achieve. And we want our pupils to have big dreams, big aspirations. We want to work with them to develop their beliefs in themselves that they can achieve those dreams. And then working with the parents, the guardians, whoever looks after the home to help support those pupils to achieve those dreams. Um, so I, I guess in a nutshell, it's about really high explicit expectations, which if you were to strip it back, is actually what parents should possess for their children. Uh, and underpinning that is not in a sycophantic sense, but a real sense of warmth and love. You know, we really care for our pupils and we have a really extensive student care uh, approach and student care model as a school. So whilst we've got a firm element in terms of behavioural expectations, we've also got that warmth element whereby we're going to look after you as well. We're in this together. And, and it's a collective approach, and it's certainly not a them and us within the context of the school. Um, but yes, ultimately, it's a school that is built upon high expectations, explicit values, really clear, sensible rules that are easy to understand, and a can-do culture. How important do you feel it is for education to be dispassionate? Let me explain what I mean. Um, presenting uh, almost apolitical facts, apolitical ideas, and teaching children how to think critically, but not teaching children how to think. Yeah, I, that is a huge challenge, isn't it? I taught politics for nine years to the old A2. Um, and it's, it's a huge challenge when you walk in the room to be apolitical and to never, ever uh, show whether you're red or blue or whatever, uh, you know, colour of the, of the political persuasion you might be. Um, I, I do think it's important that we are apolitical uh, because what we don't want to do is to show our own internal bias, which is difficult, uh, and our own 
what we, I guess ultimately what we, we shouldn't be doing is telling people what to think. Um, for the sake of argument, you know, looking at the COVID situation now, we shouldn't be telling pupils what to think about the government's approach in terms of our own personal view. We should be presenting, if we were teaching that as a topic, again, for sake of argument, we should be presenting the, the information in a factual sense. I think it's fair, though, to bring in different interpretations. So I'm a history teacher by trade, and you know, say a topic like why did the First World War begin? We might want to give something quite left field, like AJP Taylor's theory on tra uh, train timetables, uh, and how that ultimately caused the First World War, which kind of makes people's ears prick up and, and think, well, what on earth are you talking about here, Mr. Strickland? Um, but then comparing that to other uh, theories and theorems as to why the First World War began, and then obviously allowing the pupils, and this is where I bring back that idea of noise, forget noise, allowing them, once they've got a good, solid knowledge base, to create their own view, their own perspective as to why that event began, or to put their own tact on evaluating why X, Y, or Z might happen. And I think we've got to allow pupils that level of creativity with the, the knowledge base those answers and to create those viewpoints otherwise it becomes very controlling and very domineering now of course uh you are an you are a published author so i'd like to talk a bit about uh your two books education exposed mm -hmm. and education exposed Two. please tell our listeners a bit about them and about your forthcoming book yes education exposed uh leading a school in a time of uncertainty uh that came out uh, earlier this year uh, in February uh, and the book has um, been really well received by the profession which I'm um, you know, really humbled by and really grateful for and, and that book uh, is a book I would argue that is appropriate to anyone of any level whilst the overall kind of sphere of it is, um, is geared towards leadership in a broad sense and how to drive a school forward there's lots in there that any member of staff at any level within a school can, can take away. And that book was geared around kind of five key clear sections. And each section uh, has two chapters to it. Uh, there's a section on leadership. Uh, there's a section on behavior, a section on uh, the, the curriculum, a section on workloads uh, and staff well-being and uh, staff CPD. And the idea within each chapter is that I start with a series of misconceptions which have plagued the profession and then give um, my experiences, my advice, things I believe that work, uh, grounded in not just my own experience, but obviously in research and evidence as well. And then at the end of every chapter, there are kind of five punchy takeaways. And that particular book try to, to design and craft it in such a way that it is ram-packed with practical suggestions that you can take away and apply to whichever setting you work in uh, almost immediately. Uh, and the book itself is, is quite a pithy read. It's uh, just over 100 pages, so you can read it in about two hours, I would argue. But it is, uh, someone described it as a bit of a pocket rocket, um, but it's, it's jam-packed with... with um, advice and guidance and takeaways for, for, for people. Um, Education Exposed 2, uh, in pursuit of the housing dream, uh, that comes out, I believe, on the 11th of October, all things being uh, equal. And this book is, uh, 
in many regards, an extension of the first book, Education Exposed. Um, and it's divided into four sections. The first section looks at what the housing dream is. So it's really focusing in on why do teachers become teachers and what prohibits or precludes them from our normal day job, which is actually teaching pupils, which is where all the magic happens. Um, there's a detailed section in this book on um, classroom behaviour and classroom management strategies. Uh, and that's appropriate and applicable uh, to classroom teachers, to middle leaders and to senior leaders. And there's a, a about, it, it is, one of the chapters is absolutely round-packed with immediate strategies that you can use in a classroom as of tomorrow or as soon as you've read the book. Uh, the second, there's another chapter which focuses heavily on the curriculum. Um, and what I've tried to do in, in this section is to look at curriculum theory and some of the key theories that I think have got um, a real sense of, uh, of validity in the real world and actually work within the real world. Um, I've tried to identify within this the, the importance and place of knowledge uh, and why perhaps it's more than simply just a series of pub flat quiz, um, quiz questions. Uh, and then also within that, a series of teaching strategies that will allow the knowledge to stick. And actually, a lot of those strategies uh, also kind of marry up and double up as um, behaviour strategies, but also they are engaging strategies that actually allow the content to be the engager, that actually allow the lessons and the content to be fun. Uh, and then the final um, section of the book delves into uh, the, the whole notion and idea of is, is leadership a race? Um, because that's something I believe that's kind of played the profession is the idea that we need to go at a thousand miles an hour and effect change every two seconds and come up with new initiatives and ideas almost every other minute. Uh, and actually, I, I challenge that kind of orthodox in some areas within the, within the profession. Um, so I hope it's a book that's useful again to anybody of any level within the school. Uh, and it, it is, I would argue, jam-packed and rammed with lots of practical um, strategies and suggestions and tips for people to take forward. Uh, and again, it's a, it's a pity read. It's around 100 pages long, which is very deliberate on my part, because uh, sometimes educational books, and this, this isn't meant as a, as a slight or slur on, on other educational books, can be quite long um, and take significantly a long time to read. And I, I didn't want that to be the case. Sometimes there's a time and a place for books to be long. Of <laughs> well, it's been a pleasure to have you on the program again, Sam, and I do hope we can have you back on when Education Exposed 3 uh, eventually makes his way to the Fantastic. publisher. Um, <laughs> no, Sam, thank you again. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Real pleasure. That was Sam Strickland, principal of the Dunstan School and author of Education Exposed and Education Exposed 2, which is set for release later this autumn. And now, if you haven't heard it before, Scott Chaloner's exclusive interview with Sir Jeff Hurst. And now, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, we extend a very warm welcome to a special guest in Sir Jeff Hurst, who joins us on the programme today. Um, Sir Jeff, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Very good, thank you. It certainly is a uh, wonderful uh, day for it, isn't it? It is. The weather's pretty good at the moment. I hope may, may it last. Absolutely. After a thunderstorm, it's, it's lovely. It is certainly after a storm. And um, speaking of storms, actually, I'd like to start with just a hypothetical scenario. If we imagine if we fast forward two years, Sir Jeff, let's imagine it's December 2022 and it's the World Cup final and England are there. We could be playing defending champions France. We could be playing the Germans, anybody. And England are 2-0 up in the 90th minute. So victory is all but guaranteed. 
and Harry Kane, with a brace to his name already, is brought down in the penalty area. So he has the opportunity to make history by emulating yourself and becoming only the second ever player to score a World Cup final hat-trick. Would you honestly want him to bury it or would you prefer him to fluff his lines? I'd want him to bury it. Um, I've asked that question, again, that question asked a bit. Um, I've had a good run uh, with, with this record and goodness me, that's how it's nearly 60 years, I guess, if, if uh, we're looking at 2022. No, I'd want him to bury it. A, a for him, he's a fantastic player, a uh, tremendous goal scorer. And if anybody I'd like to um, repeat what I achieved, uh, it would be someone like Harry, who's a f- fantastic professional with, with Spurs in England. So absolutely. And I want England to do well. I mean, I I'm want England to be successful. I, I'm an England supporter. I'm a football supporter. And I just, I really want the country to do well in, in anything, in, in all sports, and particularly in my sport. So I will not want to bury it. And I'll be absolutely, I will be as delighted as anybody in, in the country um, if, if he can achieve that. But, but more importantly, that England, England have achieved what we achieved all those years ago. And it's important that the team uh, do it as opposed to Harry doing it individually. Mm. And that's how I felt about my. Uh, my achievements about the team being successful, whether I got two or three, in one sense is, is uh, wouldn't say immaterial, but it's about the team winning. It's all about the team. Mm. Exactly. Consideration of the wider team is a cornerstone of leadership, which is, of course, what the Leaders' Council is all about, recognising that and promoting that for the future. But if we sort of flash back 54 years to that moment in 1966 when you were bearing down on goal, I understand that a lot of people always ask you the question about whether you actually knew there were people on the pitch at the time. And there's quite a bit of a joke about that. But there's something else that I'm actually interested in. I understand. We all know what happened. The ball nestled in the top corner. England won 4-2 and lifted the World Cup. But you've often described that as being a mishit finish sometimes before, haven't you? Yes, I think people... Um, I, I've, I, I, I recall exactly what's amazing. I can recall exactly what I was thinking. Um, at that moment, obviously a crucial moment in, in the game towards the end of the game. I knew the game was nearly finished. I, as the ball came to me initially, I was actually, with my back to goal, I was actually looking at the referee uh, 10 yards from me in the middle of the park and he was waving at the whistle in his mouth but waving play on with both arms, indicating quite clearly, of course, that the game was nearly finished. So when I got to the edge of the box, I'm, I now think of the game is nearly finished. I'm thinking, if the game's nearly finished, I'm never going to whack this ball with everything I've got left. But I'm thinking if it goes beyond the beyond the sand into the crowd by the time the ball boy gets it back to uh, hand still Kowski, the German keeper by that time surely the game has got to be over but as I always jokingly say uh, I miss hit it and it and it flew in but I was thinking about wasting time not so much about uh, but certainly what I was going to do which which sorry I was going to hit it as hard as I possibly could after those two hours and it just goes to show sometimes that hit and hope taking a punt can sometimes be the way forward because I think it shows that in any form of leadership, be it in sport or in business, you can't go sometimes without taking risks. Absolutely, yes, absolutely. Yes, I mean, I wasn't in that position with risk in a sense because the game was unfinished, but that that, that philosophy is right. You're just going to, uh, there's an element of, of, of risks uh, and making, it's going to be a control on that risk, not, not stupid risks in, in mm. all walks of life an element of maybe doing something you're not too sure about. But sometimes in life, you've got to have a go. You can't get be successful in terms of long-term leadership if you're just always sitting on the fence and not taking any chances. I don't think that's where the great leaders will get to by having that kind of philosophy. 
you've got to move forward. And the last time that you actually joined us on the Leaders' Council podcast and spoke with my colleague Jonathan White, uh, Sir Jeff, was back in February, of course. And that was a point where we knew a little bit about COVID-19, which was looming, but that was before it really took hold in the UK and really turned our world upside down. And before that, this summer was meant to be all about the England national team once again, who were going to the European Championships. But that's in a way now been replaced by the National Health Service and we've been supporting the health service and applauding their efforts and we're hanging out thank you banners displaying drawings of rainbows very much in the same vein that you'd see the George Cross adorning most households during a major tournament year. Do you feel there are parallels between the sense of national unity that we discovered during this time and the spirit of 1966? Oh absolutely particularly the the recognition of the NHS with what they're doing and I think it was a great idea uh, during that period where they asked everybody to stand outside their houses and clap and congratulate the NHS for w- what they were going through. And I think it's, it's been criticism in the past, of course, the NHS on how it's run, whether there's enough, enough funding for it and, and so on. But really, we begin to realise during these turbulent times how absolutely vital and uh, important it is to have a, a health service that works efficiently, and to see individually the, the amount of people who are interviewed almost every day on the t- terrible circumstances they were having to work under with with masks and so on, and and also into what was also for me fantastic, all these people from different countries all over the world that were working in our country uh, with the same u- u- union to to be successful and uh, help people to survive uh, COVID. And very heartwarming. And I think that kind of feeling, I, I probably, as a player in 66, I probably wasn't aware at that time of the unity of the country. I've learned that over the years when I talk to people um, who were about 66 and they will tell you what a great day it was and where they were, remembered exactly what they were doing and the fantastic stories. So that identified then as that great unification of the country, 30 million plus viewers, the biggest view, TV viewing audience we've had. So today, um, it's certainly uh, through this pandemic and the NHS has been absolutely magnificent and every single person, uh, some very fantastic and heartwarming stories of how they're dealing with this unbelievably uh, difficult situation from a health perspective. Uh, fantastic. So that was really heartwarming to get out and cheer and clap on the balcony. Um, for the NHS, fantastic. Mm, certainly inspiring what we've been seeing uh, from the uh, the front line as well. And flashing back just to 1966 again, just from a leadership point of view, um, the manager that made all of that possible and oversaw yourself and your teammates on the, ro- the road to the World Cup was, of course, Sir Alf Ramsey. What sets somebody like him or Ron Greenwood apart from other coaches? Because I understand that both men had a profound impact on you, not just as a player, but also as a person as well. Well, I think that I was very fortunate. <laughs> You're talking about going to the, the, the fortunate in your life to be at, at the time when I was physically at my my best during those those, those years. Um, born earlier or later, I wouldn't have been around uh, physically enough, and clever enough, and technically good enough to, to be around to be a, a good player. But at that time, I'm involved with arguably the greatest coach um, we've seen in this country, Harry Redknapp who's been around a long time, would still say he is, he is the best coach he has worked with. And that's, just, that's 50 years having been in the business plus. And then moving on to, to having a, a national level, a great manager. 
uh, and the two coincided in a sense because Ron Greenwood always always said that and felt that he as a as a a coach of a League One club uh, or Premier League as it is today, it's it's important you prepare the and teach and coach the players to be to prepare to be playing in the best company, playing for England. And so he prepared us to be playing for England. And then Alf Ramsey knew the players to pick. Um, discipline was his big skill. Making sure those players were disciplined uh, in the right formation. Uh, so the two combined move from one to the other. Uh, how, how can you possibly be as, as fortunate um, as, as I was? It was just uh, amazing. So I think Ron was, I think there are two different aspects of football in terms of leadership. You've got a, you've got a, a coach, who's a team coach, who's a teacher effectively. Then you've got the other kind of character who's a, who's a manager, who manages people. May not be quite so good technically on the coaching aspects, but by that stage, a wrong reason of passing a coach person to Al, who then managed from a discipline point of view, because you're managing people from the whole country. You're not just managing a club. You're managing people, uh, different characters, and from all over the country is, is slightly more demanding job in that respect. So you've got to hone that lot of all over, different characters, strengths, players, into a unit to play for, uh, to represent England. So Alf Ramsey was, was very good at that. His discipline was, was fantastic. So the com- combination of the two, uh, you can't say I can't be as, I'm so blessed to be as fortunate as I was to come across these two fantastic uh, uh, people in my life, in my, in my football life. And I suppose for every Sir Alf Ramsey and Ron Greenwood um, as well that you have worked with, there are also coaches out there that one might work with that perhaps might not get the best out of players during their, um, of course, their peak. But just, of course, just but just as much as you can learn from, of course, coaches that do get the best out of players, you can learn as much from less effective leaders as you can from good ones as well, because that experience can ultimately mould you as a person, can't it? Oh yes, I think it, yes, I think leadership is important and coaching and teaching is important. Um, and, and the great teachers and coaches and managers ha- have that skill. Sometimes it's an innate skill in, in management. They have it. But I think um, you you can learn, if you're central enough, to learn from people who are uh, teaching you or coaching you. It's not the right way to go about teaching you or coaching or managing you. You can learn uh, from that. If you're a player, you can learn what you think is a good coach what you think is a good manager, which you can take into your career after playing into uh, coaching and management so you can learn as much from people making mistakes you can learn also from making your own mistakes mm. you can do something in the past that think well, like that was a really stupid thing to do and I'll make sure I'm not going to do that again and it, it is important in all of life you learn from your mistakes people will make mistakes uh, young people will make mistakes but it's learning it's the silly people who make mistakes and don't learn from it, continue making those same mistakes throughout their life and becoming maybe unsuccessful throughout their, their career. Completely understand exactly where you're coming from. I think it's almost impossible to become an effective leader in our profession without having that learning curve of making mistakes and learning from them exactly. Um, During your conversation um, with Jonathan back in February, um, Sir Jeff, I know that you and him discussed at length some of the big inspirations and influences on you throughout your career and throughout adulthood. But I understand that your love for football and obsession with the sport actually started a lot earlier even if you were toing and froing between football and cricket somewhat at the time. I read somewhere that during your teenage years, you were once fined one pound for disturbing the peace after consistently kicking a football into a neighbour's garden. Is that true? 
<laughs> Not many people know that, as the saying goes. Yeah, that's absolutely true. When in in those uh, medieval days, you there were, you weren't football pitches or place very rarely where you could play. You um, in our road in Greenway, as it was called in Chelmsford. We that three or four lads <coughs> lived quite, quite close to it. It's a cul-de-sac, it's not a big long road um, with a round with a circle at the bottom. So there wasn't a great deal of traffic anyway. A because it was a, a cul-de-sac, and B because there weren't as many cars. No, there as many cars in those days. So uh, we played across, across the across the road, um, and you used to have to learn to chip the ball above the pavement to hit the uh, the goal at the back. The goal was about a, a two foot wide semicircular where the tree where a tree was planted. That was the goal. And so it's just three of us play football. But amongst those houses where we lived and played, there was a, a family and a, a boy that didn't play football. Um, I think he he was interested in uh, flying, you know, and making balsa wood gliders. And uh, nice guy, but just didn't, didn't play football. And on this particular garden, uh, of course, occasionally the ball finished up there. And crazily enough, they... Um, took us to court and uh, we actually got fined this is absolutely true we got fined a pound for kicking the ball in the neighbour's garden astounding when you think about it isn't it mm. and when you there's nowhere else to play apart from the street and uh, we were actually but that that happens that happens you'll, you'll hear stories we see stories of neighbours falling out over different things you see those those stories every day but that was certainly a true story absolutely absolutely true and during that time, um, who was it during childhood that you really looked up to that you thought was an inspiration to you and made you really think that going into professional sport was going to be the route for you? Well, my father was obviously the, the, the biggest inspiration for me because he was an ex-player. He, he played uh, lower down for Oldham Rochdale. We actually moved south from Manchester. We, we, I was born in Ashton under line. We actually moved south to Chelmsford when I was pr- probably, I was the eldest of three, when I was probably about seven or eight into this particular street uh, called Greenways. And he, what he did with me, I think was uh, had a big influence, going back to that third gold in the World Cup in many years in the back garden. And when we moved on to it, we moved up market to a council house somewhere in Chelmsford. And he would have me in the back garden teaching me to kick with my left foot. And so I, at that time, and even today, it's, it's, uh, you don't see that many players that are uh, completely two-footed, and I was. Maybe not as two-footed as Bobby Charlton. Even Jack Charlton, his brother, didn't know which was his best foot. He, he was fantastic. But I was pretty pretty um, um, two-footed. And a lot of the hat-tricks I scored were one right, one left, and a header. So um, he, had, he had a huge influence. I wasn't, I wasn't a child, although I had a football, footballing father, I wasn't a child whose father pushed him into being a footballer. He, he um, and what happened with my, my story is a friend of my father, I know the guy's name, called Jock Redfern, unbeknownst to me, he wrote to two clubs uh, for a trial. He wrote to Arsenal and he wrote to West Ham United when I was just after school leaving age. Uh, West Ham uh, replied, they asked me to come for a trial um, I went for a trial w- with them and uh, they saw something in me and took me on the what was called the ground staff then, uh, almost at school leaving age. And uh, so I wasn't necessarily thinking I've got to go into football. It's just that that's how it, how it happened. Uh, although I enjoyed football and I was pretty reasonably good, 
there was no big focus on me uh, as a great schoolboy player. Nobody was scouting me or, uh, you know, writing to my parents saying, come and have a trial at this club or that club. Uh, but a friend of my father um, wrote the letter. So that's, that's how it happened. But the problem I had during those early years, I enjoyed cricket as well. And I was messing about, as I, I kind of put it, between the two sports, which was hugely detrimental to me in my early, early development, either as a cricketer or either as a footballer. And it wasn't until Ron Greenwood um, miraculously tried me. I was a midfield player then or centre-half at school. Um, he uh, said, I'm going to try you up front. He put me up front in the game and then my, my whole football career and life changed dramatically. And I suppose as well, what might have also done it for football as opposed to cricket was that fateful match uh, for Essex over in Egberth against Lancashire, wasn't it? Yes, a lot of people know that. Uh, one game, uh, one game, the sort of went messing about between the two. I had the one first-class game for Essex, at, as you said, Egberth in um, in Liverpool. And I think I got naught and, and naught not out, I think. So, I mean, we won the game for me. I thought a couple of catches, but uh, Essex actually won the game. Um, v Lancashire up up in their territory. But that was that was a real problem for me. I think I could have done some advice maybe earlier to say, make your mind up. But when you look back, when even today cricket goes through till, what, September? Whereas football starts in July, so there's a huge overlap. And I'm still playing cricket until September, missing pre-season, early games. For those two or three years, extremely detrimental to me doing well at one or the other. Uh, until Ron Green would just put me up front and that was it. And from a standing start, I think my first season around, I think September, October, I, I played my first game up front against Liverpool. And I think I played about 23, 24 games, no, 27, 28 games and scored 14 goals, like one in two from a standing start for a, mm. a midfield player. So um, quite changed dramatically. Um, that was 60, 62, 63 season, three years before the World Cup. And when we think about leadership in football, the role of a goalkeeper, of course, not related to your own career, is to essentially build from the back and command this penalty area. And one goalkeeper that you played with, not just for England, but also for Stoke City in the later years in your career, was Gordon Banks. I have to confess, as a boyhood Port Vale supporter, I am relieved that incredible talents like yourself and Gordon are no longer occupying the dressing room there. And I did have the fortune of meeting Gordon when I was a young boy as well. But what was Gordon like as a leader on the field? Well, first of all, he, he was a great, uh, two things for Gordon. He was a, a great keeper. Um, I would still say the greatest English keeper we've ever had uh, and one of the best keepers in the world. Um, absolutely fantastic. Funny enough, I didn't realise, it's funny how you look at, I see when Gordon passed away, naturally, you know, sadly, um, a few months ago, and obviously it's showing a lot of videos of Banksy, the programs about Banksy and the great saves he made and the save against Pelé and so on. But I didn't realise how um, athletic he was, uh, how quick he was, athletic, um, springing forward to smother balls, and not just tipping balls. Agility-wise, he was absolutely fantastic. But as a character, he was a joker. He was a, a very kind, very mild-mannered, lovely lovely man, the nicest guy you can possibly wish to meet. But he was a joke. He always had a, a joke for you. Every time you met sometime, he'd you, have a new joke. And uh, people um, talk about him and who are close to him and remembered what a what a, um, a joke he was. And they're the two things that really stick out for, Man- for Banksy. And we were very lucky. And 
very lucky, of course, to have that kind of, and you need that kind of quality um, as a world-class player. When you win a World Cup, you need four or five players, which we were very fortunate to have in our team. Um, uh, Banks is one of the world-class players, along with Bobby Moore and, and Bobby Charlton. Uh, Jimmy Greaves didn't play with a world-class player in, but in the squad and Ray Wilson our left back I'd always argue was a world-class player so you need that kind of quality initially if you're going to be successful in winning a World Cup some world-class players and Banksy was up there w- w- not with the best the best for me and another thing from during your days at Stoke City as well was that a talented but then troubled young midfielder by the name of Alan Hudson first joined the uh, the club around uh, the early 70s. And I know that you were asked to take him in as a lodger to provide him with a stable home during his spell there by then manager Tony Waddington. Now, I've spoken to a great many directors and executives on this programme before, and all of them describe trust as being a key cornerstone of leadership. How did it feel for you knowing that Waddington trusted you to that degree to ask that of you? Well, I was extremely flat. It was a huge compliment that he saw me as a, and of course, over the years, hopefully that, that had come out. That's important that uh, you have those kind of qualities as a player that A, he saw when I was at West Ham and B, obviously acquired me to play at Stoke City. So I was, I was initially first fairly surprised, I think it <laughs> And certainly, my wife was fairly surprised when I when I said I need her permission for for me to um, uh, allow Alan Hudson to stay with us in that, those early periods. But what he saw, of course, in me was uh, which is, I can see in myself. I was, I was a very disciplined person, a very disciplined player, which you have to be. I didn't really have, I would say, the qualities of the world class players like the Bobby Charles and the Jimmy Greaves and the Bobby Moores. So uh, you need to have bring all the other characteristics to be successful at, at that level, to compete in their level. And discipline was one of them. And, and um, obviously, Tony Waddington saw that. And if he wanted to put, he trusted me that I was disciplined enough to hopefully push some of my discipline into Alan Hudson, which we did. And um, in those early six months and year, a couple of years, he was come up a bit heavier from Chelsea. He lost a bit of weight. And uh, although he was a little bit indisciplined himself, hence they needed him to, to stay with me, what he was was a fantastic player. He is uh, was he is one of the, the, the most fantastic players I think I've come across the, across, but not hit the best because I think he was a certain uh, slightly bit of ill discipline within his, his general life. And you need at the top, and I'm talking at the top being, being an England player, but I compare him purely on ability compared with ability up in the France Beckenbauer mould mm. without any shadow of a doubt. He, he was that good. So it was a bit of fun and enjoyable times. Uh, getting uh, serving Alan Hudson the cups of tea about eight o'clock at night when we had our tea at our home for those uh, those few months. And I think he, it was a, a big help to uh, getting Alan back on track and performing brilliantly for the club. And following on from your days with the uh, the Potters, you went on, of course, to play football in Ireland and the United States before the end of your career. Did you feel that the dressing room and indeed leadership culture at those clubs differed from perhaps what you've been used to back in England? Um, well, I think Ireland was just a short spell with, with Cork Celtic, so it's hard to judge and make any comparisons. And of course, in, in, in America, it was the early days of, um, of football in America, uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed my time at, at Seattle, so it's difficult to make a, uh, a comparison. I think I was fortunate. Hey, at West Ham, it was a great time with the club. 
and I was fortunate to play with Stoke City uh, for three years, and it was a fantastic time for that particular club. They won, of course, the uh, the the League Cup before I went there. Mm. Sadly, they knocked us out in the semi final. So it was a, a marvelous time for for that particular club, and very close. We actually, I think, we played Ajax in, in the, in the following year in, in Europe. I think we only lost on the, on the goal over two over the two games against Ajax. So it was a great time for the club. So I'm very fortunate to have played uh, for, for those two clubs. Only a short spell at West Brom, of course, but I think, uh, as I always jokingly say, I think I was past my uh, sell-by date then. Um, West Brom was a fantastic club, but I, was, I wasn't at my best, and I thought it was time to retire, which I did. And Johnny Giles was in charge then. I think uh, West, West Brom actually got up that year, but I made very little contribution to that success the club had. So, um, yes, it, the, the American experience was just fantastic. I never saw it as long-term being over there. That was a, a, a brilliant few months with my wife and um, uh, two daughters. And my wife, and she was uh, pregnant with her third daughter over there. So that was, that was a good time. It's completely different. Ireland was just a, just a... I always joke about Ireland. I was there for about, I think, a month, I think it was. And I enjoyed the experience. And I earned a few quid, and I think it paid for the kitchen in one of my houses back in England. New kitchen. <laughs> so it certainly went really well. I suppose in the waning days of um, your career, um, was it humbling that you realised that people were beginning to actually look up to you and be inspired by you as a legend as in perhaps the same way that you were looking to the likes of Bobby Moore earlier on in your career? Yes, I think it's... I think the that kind of... Uh, whatever the word, correct word is, I don't know, being looked at and, and revered sort of comes maybe uh, maybe longer maybe in longer not some sort of immediately after you've finished playing but in the long term when um, uh, uh, and I always joke with people introduce me either to other people or introduce me on stage uh, as a legend and, and I always joke and say you, you only start being called a legend when you're over 70 and I think the, the whatever the word is I'm not sure adulation or recognition or whatever it sort of happens and you think more about it or it happens and occurs more in later years. Not not certainly, um, I felt during the time after I finished playing or managing or playing for England during my, during my football career. And I think I, I went into business for 20 years. I don't think anybody looked necessarily looked at me when I was in business as necessarily a legend or somebody they could look up. So I, I felt that kind of attitude probably has happened in, in my later years probably. For those younger generations, just lastly, Sir Jeff, before we do wrap things up, um, for people who are aspiring to become leaders in business, politics, sport, or indeed any walk of life, if you could offer any advice to them based upon your experience, what advice would you give them? Simple advice in, in, in a sentence is really, I learned a lot from Alf Ramsey. He was a, he was a boss. I think a boss sometimes has, has natural characteristics. You can learn about management or mental courses. But there's certain characteristics when the successful bosses is, is within them to start with. But one of the things I learned from Alfred Ramsey, because I take it into my, my business life and even my fa- uh, talking to my family life, if they're involved in business, is when you're managing people, you manage them as a group. Anybody that doesn't want to be part of that group, you find is, is, is backing against what you want to achieve as a boss, you move them out. And I think that's the simple, one of the most simple uh, lessons I've learned during the Alfred Ramsey period. Even some of the great players I felt should have been in the squad, possibly at, at the time, without mentioning names. Um, and you hear stories about 
this player not, you know, completely complying with everything and they're, they're left out or they're not even in the squad. And I felt that was, even, and even some with great ability, I, I think probably didn't make it. And I think a lot of it stems down to they didn't want to be, they wanted to be, you know, a lone champion, successful person, didn't want to be part of, of the group. So that, that for me is the, the key message, the single key message I would pass on to anybody who wants to manage a group of people in any walk of life. And ties in very nicely with a quote from one Nelson Mandela, in fact, that surround yourself with people who are better than you are in some ways. And I think that is incredibly sound advice indeed. Yes, it is. Very good. Good advice. Yes. So, Jeff, thank you ever so much for joining us on the uh, the programme this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us to discuss your life, career and leadership. And it would be a pleasure to welcome you back on the programme in future to discuss further. Pleasure. Thank you. Enjoy, enjoy being part of the programme. Thank you. Likewise, thank you ever so much for your time again. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, other guests, or any other person therein associated.